Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Okay, guys, uh, we'll continue our study here tonight in the book of Genesis, picking back up. We'll be in Genesis chapter 25 tonight, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. I want to thank once again, um, specifically for Wednesday night, uh, David Owens and James Conrad, the last couple Wednesdays, filling in. Um, I know you guys were blessed by their teaching, and I was grateful to have them step in and um, I believe they both mentioned it at the beginning, but um, both David and James are in the process of becoming elders here at Calvary, and so we will make that official here very soon as we get into the summer, or ordain them as, as elders here in the church. Um, it is them as well as um, Rusty Bonnet and, um, and uh, Rich Tice are four that are going through that process right now, and so it's good for you guys to hear from leaders in the church as well, and elders. Um, that is one of the qualifications, is that they would be apt to teach. It uh, doesn't mean they're in the pulpit every Sunday, but they're apt to teach. They enjoy teaching the Word of God and sharing it, and they did a great job of that. So, um, And we had a great trip out west, um, for those that we hadn't seen yet. Uh, it, was, it was a great time, both at the 10th hour and out in uh, Arizona, but as always, it's good to be back here as well and with you guys tonight as we pick up our study again. So. Uh, again, let's uh, look here at uh, chapter 25. Uh, we find ourselves here. Um, what's happened prior to this is that uh, uh, Sarah, uh, Abraham and Sarah, we have Sarah who has passed away. Um, Isaac, or Abraham, I guess, essentially sent out one of his servants, an unnamed servant, to seek out a bride for Isaac. Uh, we considered last time we were here in Genesis, in Genesis 24, just the amazing account of how God moved and worked to make it known who would be the, the bride of Isaac. Um, and of course, that is uh, Rebecca. And so um, just an amazing story of God's faithfulness. We see also in that parallel, uh, Abraham, the, the father, sending out an unnamed servant working on his behalf, functioning in some respects as the Holy Spirit to get the church, a bride, to bring them to Isaac who is waiting. And so, you know, as always throughout Scripture, um, it doesn't take much for us to see the gospel on display. And so there at the end of chapter 24 was that account where Rebecca is now making her way. They're getting close and she sees Isaac afar off and she asks, who is that? And, and um, uh, she's told, that's, uh, that's, that's your husband, that's, that's Isaac. And um, she gets off of uh, uh, the camels and and takes off for him. And so it's a, it's a pretty exciting moment there as we see now this, this line toward the Messiah, this chosen people, um, continuing uh, to grow and to progress. And then there at the end of the chapter as well, it's an encouragement also for Isaac. Um, it comforts him as he is still grieving the loss of his mother. And so to have Rebecca with him, to have his wife now with him is a comfort to him. And... Um, Indeed, she serves as just that. And so then, as we get into uh, chapter 25 here, we really, uh, in, in 25, we've got kind of two parts to the chapter. Now, I, I think it is fitting the way that the chapter begins with really a discussion of Abraham uh, as we see him come into the end of his earthly life and uh, the words that are spoken about him and then kind of the contrast we see throughout the chapter of other people's lives um, and so the, there is some connection between the beginning and the end, but they also, in some respects, function as a couple of different stories. Um, and so here at the beginning, um, we dive back into Abraham's life for a short bit. We look at a couple of genealogies, and then we come into uh, the account of the birth of Esau and Jacob. And so here at the beginning of chapter 25 in verse 1, let's just look at just verse 1 here. It says that Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. 
And so the, Keturah is, is oftentimes not really considered. I mean, mo- a lot of people don't really think about her. They don't think about Abraham and uh, this other wife that he had after Sarah's passing and the children he had with her. But Abraham lives another 35 years after Isaac's marriage there at the end of chapter 24. And so he's got a good bit of life ahead of him still. And... Um, He marries Keturah. There's not much that's known about her. Her name is mentioned elsewhere, and she's listed as a concubine. And I don't think that's a fitting description of her. Um, I don't think that's what this is. Abraham, there's no evidence to suggest to us um, that he took many wives uh, during his life. He was very dedicated to Sarah. Of course, we have uh, the... Uh, incident with Hagar, but even that was something that he was very reluctant uh, initially to engage in that relationship, and that was at the request of of Sarah, foolishness on his part, on both of their parts. But um, Keturah is not a concubine, in my opinion. Um, she is another wife that he has married, and so she bore him in verse two. Uh, here's a list of their sons, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And so um, Abraham here has six more children. Pretty amazing, uh, considering especially his age at this point. And, um, and again, as we think about Abraham and his story and most of the narrative, it's really about, you know, when's this one child going to be born? And he has this wife who's barren and all these years of waiting. And so now he has six more children. So in total, eight children, but only one, of course, uh, the promised son, that being Isaac. Now, we don't know much about any of these children uh, with the exception of, I think really the last three we see show up elsewhere in Scripture, chief of which is Midian, um, who is the father of the Midianites. And so the Midianites in particular play a role throughout Israel's history and really are aligned more so with the uh, the uh, Canaanites. And so not much is known about his children here, but we're given this account. And um, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldah. And all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, verse 5. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Um, so here it's, it, it should be, and there's a lot of things that you know we can speculate. There's a lot of things we can make assumptions on, um, this being one of them, that it was likely the case that it was understood going into this relationship that, any children would not be the recipients, they would not be the heirs of the inheritance that that was uh, saved alone for uh, Isaac. Now, uh, certainly they were cared for, um, they were watched over, they were protected, they had resources, and they were given gifts, uh, but all that Abraham had, his ultimate inheritance, and of course, the, the most important piece, that being the, the blessing and the promise of the covenant, uh, was, was for Isaac. And so uh, what appears to be here a less maybe hostile departure than that of Hagar and Ishmael, there comes a time when he sends them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. And so again, it's, it's, it's understood here that uh, he cared for them uh, just as he did uh, Hagar and Ishmael um, and just as God did, certainly, um, watched over them and cared for them. But there is an emphasis placed on the role of Isaac. In verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. So his life in total, 175 years. Um, Of course, when we go back to the time in the age of Noah and prior to that, uh, shortly after death had entered in, we see lifespans uh, quite a bit longer than this. But even for us, 175 years sounds pretty old. Um, and I would say that even at this particular time, uh, that, that is fairly old. Abraham lived a, a pretty long life. Um, the, the average lifespan had reduced greatly at this point from uh, the point of creation. And as we'll see here a little bit later, even with the mention of Ishmael, um, Abraham did indeed uh, live a very long life. And the thing is here is it says that he lived 175 years. Then Abraham, verse 8, breathed his last 
and he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And so it was a full life. And ultimately, that's what I would title the message here this evening, and we'll get into that more as we consider what happens with Jacob and Esau. Um, But here we have at the very beginning an example of someone who lived a very full life. Uh, And it wasn't, now here's the interesting thing, because Scripture here would tell you, and your Bibles likely all say full of years, but chances are in your Bibles, of years is in italics. And when you see that, what that's telling you is that that's not in the original translation that's not in the original manuscript and so what we could really read here is that um, that Abraham died full he died full he had a full life um, James and, and James and there's there's many places where uh, we um, hear about Abraham uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament um, James though in particular chapter 2 verse 23 uh, says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. I don't know if there's much of a fuller life than that. To believe on God, to be counted righteous, and to be considered a friend of God. You know, I think it's important for us to look at this and, and, and to really pull the of years out here because I, it's not really about the fullness of the years. Certainly a blessed life oftentimes is marked by a, by a lengthy life. But that's not what Scripture was intending. The the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe here, was not intended to communicate that. Abraham didn't have a full life just because it was 175 years. He had a full life because he was a man who learned to trust in God. He had a full life because he was a man who believed in God. He had a full life because over his experiences, he saw God's faithfulness. And he learned to believe and to trust that God, what God said he was going to do, he would do. And he lived then in contentment because of that. We see Abraham make some, some pretty big mistakes earlier on in his life. But towards the tail end, all we really begin to get is just that Abraham seems to be a man who's very content, very patient, ready to hear from the Lord, ready to be obedient to the Lord, ready to do whatever it is that the Lord asks him. That should be the aim for each and every one of us, that we would get to a place where daily we would just be ready to hear from God, to be obedient to follow him, to not be distracted by the things of this world, to not be motivated by the things of this world. I think that's why Abraham, we can say that he lived a full life. It was not the result of the years so much as it was the result of a relationship with God, a man who was a friend of God. And so here this man, this incredible man who we've really been considering for several chapters here who's considered the, the father of a, of a nation. I mean, it's, it, this is Father Abraham, right? Now we see his life here on earth coming to an end. And uh, it says that uh, he breathed his last and, and that he was gathered to his people. Now some people debate what exactly this means. A couple of opinions here. One, that this is really just that he was brought to a place where many people were able to mourn and, and to see him and then lay him to rest. Um, and others believe that this is sort of an indication that uh, of an afterlife, that he was gathered to his people. Of course, later on, we'll hear references to a place called Abraham's bosom, where those who died in faith uh, prior to Jesus would, would go. And so some people believe that this is getting more at that, that here Abraham is, is uh, entering into the afterlife, as it were. And I don't know that I necessarily have an opinion. To me, it reads as if people were, were there with him, but I don't know that for sure. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. You recall that when Sarah had passed away, Abraham was uh, in this particular area at that time, and he negotiated a deal with the locals to buy this particular plot of land. Uh, It was suggested at the beginning that it would be given to him, but that was more of just a bartering technique, and they go back and forth, and they kind of work out a deal, but ultimately what's known here is that Abraham, he pays more than a fair price for the land. He doesn't want to be... um, he doesn't want to be under uh, compulsion by anyone for having gotten a good deal. No, he, he buys it outright. He buys this land to lay Sarah to rest uh, in the cave, and now he is laid there as well. 
And so this was the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, verse 10. And there Abraham was buried and Sarah, his wife. And so here, kind of interesting, uh, you know, if you have this question about, well, what, uh, what of Ishmael? The last time we saw him, he was being sent away, and he was just ready to die, and God blessed he and Hagar and took care of them, and, and then we have the account that he indeed did grow and, and prosper, but now we see him again. He's come back for his father's burial. So there was obviously some communication still happening and even for Isaac and Ishmael to come together at this time, we don't have a great sense necessarily of their relationship, but we know that he is there. And it came to pass, verse 11, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roy. Now with Abraham's passing comes God's blessing on Isaac. And the continuation of the covenant. Scripture is clear here that now this passes to Isaac. And, uh, and then here, and this is what I was referring to earlier, we have what can appear to be maybe a little bit of a pause in the, the narrative. And I think it's here in some respects to bring the story of Ishmael essentially to an end by inserting his genealogy. Now this genealogy here as well as the one that follows of Isaac, which is pretty short for uh, Isaac, is, is probably inserted by Isaac himself. Um, where did he get Ishmael's genealogy? Most people believe that he probably got it. And remember at this particular time, Genesis was uh, in some respects being compiled. There were different things that were inserted throughout time. And so uh, Isaac likely had records that he was putting in. And so we read in verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaioth, then Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes, according to their nations. So in fact, Ishmael, as you see, was very prosperous. God had said as much that he would prosper him, that he would care for him. And these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So once again, we have many names there, many of which we know very little about, other than if you go throughout the genealogical history of the Old Testament, what we do know is that Ishmael and his descendants um, did live in the area defined there, mostly in the Middle East, especially to the uh, east of Israel and largely comprise the Muslim people to this day. And um, of course, we also know that uh, uh, the Muslim people and uh, Israel and the Jewish people have long had significant hostilities with one another. And so it goes all the way back um, to this time and before. And so I don't know in this particular account here if this is necessarily significant. It seems to me that it is, but there's a distinction here. And so rather, we, we could tonight, we could spend some time really sort of uh, breaking down genealogies and trying to understand that type of stuff. I didn't feel led to go that path. Um, but there is one thing that I think is worth us pulling out from this particular passage here. Uh, and that's really the distinction between Abraham's death and the death of Ishmael. Um, if it's not readily apparent to you just in the reading of it, it's a little more matter of fact, is it not, as it, as it comes to Ishmael's death. With, with Abraham, it, it speaks of, uh, of this fullness of life, whereas Ishmael, it's, and he died. Right? Um, Abraham dies full. Ishmael dies. And the word there is different. The word for death is different between Abraham and Ishmael. The word for death here literally means and he fell. Um, and so once again, I, you know, how much significance do we draw from that? I, I don't necessarily know, other than it, it seems to me certainly that Scripture is communicating to us that there is not nearly as full of a life 
with Ishmael that there is of Abraham, and, and even that he fell, um, you know, what, what, what does this mean? Does this, does this mean that there was maybe something um, that contributed to his death that was less of natural cause? Or does this just simply speak to the fact that um, he didn't die in a way where his life was full and where he had maybe um, lived a life uh, pleasing to the Lord? We, we don't know for sure. There's debate also here, especially as it says that uh, he was gathered to his people. If in fact that is speaking of uh, an afterlife, then some suggest that yes, in fact he did. That despite the different challenges that he faced in life, that he, he did die uh, in faith. Um, it says that he died in the presence of all his brethren, that, in, that, that maybe that was of natural causes, that um, people were able to gather around him as he was breathing his last. But in other translations, it says simply that he died to the east of his brethren, which would then reinforce more of what we know about Ishmael and that he was a bit of a loner, that he kept to himself, that he wasn't really around people when he died. And so these are some of the things that you can get into when you really dig into translations and you go back to original manuscripts to try and gather what, what really happened here. And I think what we can say for sure, again, is that his death was certainly different than that of Abraham's. And it goes on then from there to Isaac in verse 19. It says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. It's interesting how things change throughout time in the Bible. There's other accounts and certainly more in uh, the New Testament times where we see marriage happening in a much younger age. But here, Isaac was married at the age of 40 when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah his wife conceived. And so here Isaac and Rebekah are married at the age of 40. We start to get a sense here of uh, his genealogy as it makes its way towards giving us the account of his children who are to be born to Rebekah. But of course there's something that's a little familiar here. Uh, and that is barrenness. And so Isaac and Rebekah at this point are actually, so it says that they were married at 40, but they're nearing the age of 60 now. It's going to be 20 years in total between their marriage and her having children. And uh, this, of course, was not the first time that barrenness was an issue amongst God's chosen people. Why is that? To some degree, I think, if we even think back to our studies over these last couple of weeks, uh, and we consider the fact that we do serve a sovereign God. Yes, in fact, there are times when you know there are things that uh, uh, you know may appear are, are just the product of us living in a fallen world. Uh, even biological systems that don't seem to be functioning the way that uh, we would deem as normal. But as we consider a sovereign God who absolutely could could affect that or could change that. Do we suggest that he caused it? No, not necessarily, but that he allows it, right? And why? Why does God allow some of these things? Why does God allow the barrenness here in Rebecca's life? And I think as we look at this, it's, it's not too much of a stretch for us to consider that we often see God using circumstances in people's life to bring them to a place of dependence on him, trust in him, right? And, and that's what's happening here is... is we see that Isaac begins to plead for his wife, which is the right thing for him to do. Uh, but God oftentimes brings us to places where we're in a trial. And, and as we consider this past Sunday, maybe we're, maybe we're praying, we're pleading that God would take us out of the trial. But maybe in fact what God wants to do is bring us through the trial. And he wants to use that trial trial, excuse me, to, to teach us and to mold us and to, and to shape us. And I think it's so often the case in our lives, it's certainly the case in my life, where we just want to say, Lord, take the trial away. Take it away. Make it stop. Make it end, Lord. But if we're willing in that to be humble and to trust Him and to allow Him to move and work, He can bring us to a place of wonderful dependence on Him, a place of amazing trust in Him. And I think that's much of what he was doing here in, in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. 
And so as they come to this place, and, and maybe now it's, it's, it's really become, you know, the, God has them at this place where he's, he's pleased with where they're at. No different than, than Abraham, where, okay, this is, uh, in some respects, this, this final test, though it, wasn't, though it wasn't described as such when Abraham was called to, to offer Isaac. It wasn't so much a final test necessarily, but it sort of appears that way. Because at the end of that, God says, okay, now. Uh, if I were to paraphrase, now you're ready. And, and, and so it seems that they get to this place to some degree where God says of Isaac and Rebekah, okay, now, now it's time. And we've got to trust that, and we're going to see that play out here with their children. We've got to trust God's timing. We've got to trust what it is that God is doing. And so he creates this dependence uh, on him, and we see then that she now conceives. In verse 22, it says, But the children struggled together within her, uh, now, ladies who have ha- who have had children, or certainly ladies that uh, have had twins, might be saying, well, "Amen." <laughs> right? They they struggle. Right? Um, uh, the, 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 when you got one baby and it's doing all these kind of things, and then you got two babies doing all these kind of things. So, at face value, we could look at this and we could say, "Yeah, I mean, there's always a struggle happening in there, right?" Um, but it's more than that in this account. Why do we know that? Because she needs to seek the Lord out in this particular situation. She's got to go to the Lord to try and figure out what is going on here. As it says in verse 22, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. For her to say, if all is well, and again, some of this stuff, guys, right, is, is to some degree a bit of speculation. But if she's saying, if all is well, it would suggest to me that some have said, all is well. Everything's okay. This is, this is normal, right? Uh, but she's saying, then, then why is this going on? What's happening? So she goes to inquire of the Lord. That's exactly the place that we should go when, we're, when, we're, when, when we have exhausted man's wisdom. We go to the Lord. Now, it shouldn't always be that pattern, but that happens to be the way that it is, right? We go to, those, we go to our, our, our easy sources for insight, our comfortable sources for insight first, and then we go to God. We need to flip that around. And... Uh, and so apparently this stirring, I'll call it that, within her was more than the little kick here and there. Uh, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, the Lord is pretty specific with her here in terms of what she hears from God. And really, if I could translate it, God says, you're having twins. <laughs> There's two. And these boys will father two nations. And the older one, the one with the birthright, the one that when he's born, everybody's going to expect this is how things should go, is going to end up serving the younger one. And even now, they're fighting. So get ready, Rebecca. <laughs> right? These boys may keep you on your toes. And so... When her days were fulfilled, verse 24, for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. So it comes to fulfillment. She says, okay, the Lord said this, and indeed, here's two babies. And the first came out red. I think a lot of babies come out pretty red. Um, but it appears that with Esau, it was, he, this was a different kind of red. Uh, he was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out. And his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 60 years old, he's having twins. Esau comes out, he's born red-headed and hairy. And so the name that they give him, Esau, means hairy. He's one of the first hairies. If If any of you know a hairy and you think, that's kind of a different name, it's biblical, right? And then Jacob is smooth-skinned, okay? And he comes out and he's got a hold of Esau's heel. All this fighting that's already been going on in the womb, it's not stopping. He's on a mission. He's trying to get out of there first. He's trying to keep him back. And so his name means, Jacob means, heel grabber or usurper or deceiver, okay? Not necessarily the greatest name. When you look at it that way, you think, I don't know, I might prefer Harry, right? But uh, this speaks a little bit and will kind of continue 
to in some degrees be an indication of Jacob's character throughout his life. His, and, and maybe I sh- shouldn't say his character necessarily, although that might be true, but, but maybe even his, his, his tendency, his, his pattern, if you will. Uh, but I would say, and the reason why I sort of back off of that a little bit, is because I think it is pretty easy when we look at this text, and especially over the next several chapters that we'll get into over these next few weeks, it's easy to kind of give Jacob a bad rap. And I think a lot of times we do, even though Esau's far from perfect, I think we kind of look at Jacob here, and he might serve as one of those head scratchers for us a little bit of like, man, really this guy? God, you choose some interesting people. And that's certainly true. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But, but again, I think Jacob gets a little bit of, uh, of a bad rap. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, you know, as we continue here, um, we're going to see that uh, Jacob is... No differently than when he was born and he's grabbing the heel of his brother, he's in pursuit of what his brother has throughout his life. Um, To the extent that he wants his birthright, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, Um, he wants his birthright, and I I think probably for many years he's working on obtaining it. I think the account that we'll read here at the latter part of this chapter is not the first time that the birthright has been brought up. And so he's after that, and he sort of capitalizes on an opportunity of weakness to secure that. But then even after that, he's a little sneaky in securing the blessing from his father. And then um, with the pursuit of his wife and everything that goes down there, and he gets a little bit of a taste of his own medicine, and then there's this point where he's going to wrestle with God. And there's all these different times where it seems like, man, Jacob, you got some issues like, you, you just keep going after this stuff, right? But here's the thing. Um, yes, there are some issues with the way in which Jacob pursues things that are his desire. But the things that he desires are often very good. Okay? And that's what's different than Esau, and that's what we'll consider here tonight. It says, verse 27, so the boys grew And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Which description sounds more manly? I think it's pretty obvious, right? The hunter or the guy who stays inside, right? And and it may not even be the case amongst us here this evening, but generally speaking, if you just go with me, generally speaking, what does our culture prefer? Seems to be a little bit of a shift these days, but historically speaking, there would just be this idea of, well, the man's man, right? Right? Th- this guy, who's a, he's a skilled hunter, and he enjoys the outdoors, and he just kind of comes and goes and says, food, and goes back out and kills something else. And, and, and people think of this as, uh, well, yeah, he's, he's the guy, he's, and he's the firstborn, and it certainly seems as if Isaac takes a liking to him, but Jacob sort of is this deceiver, and he wants what he can't have, and he's just kind of a mama's boy hanging out in the kitchen. That's to some degree, what we start to get as a description uh, between these two. But here's the thing. Uh, I've already shared a little bit of how we, I think, look at Jacob wrongly at times. But then of Esau, uh, translated differently, translated perhaps rightly, it says not that he was a skilled hunter necessarily, but that he was a cunning hunter. Why is that important? Well, it has this sense of uh, he... He hunted in a way that was maybe unfair. He hunted in a way that was maybe unnecessary. What we begin to get the sense of, and it's not entirely speculation based off of insight we get from Scripture elsewhere, but that he's a guy here who's, who's sort of going out and, and he's all about the kill. In fact, uh, rabbinic tradition suggests that the way in which he's described is that he's a murderer. That actually when he comes back, as we'll see here shortly, and he's hungry and he's feeling uh, exhausted, that that language actually speaks of the fact that, not that he had just been out hunting, but that he had been out killing someone. We don't often look at it that way, and I don't know if that's true necessarily, but it's certainly suggested. Here's the other thing. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 16, says this of Esau, that he was profane, which really speaks of the fact that he's outside of the temple. He's He's an unbeliever, if you will, and also a fornicator is how he's referred to. Even then, we might, in our culture today, continue to say, oh yeah, he's a man's man, right? 
He's chasing after all the things of the world, the pleasures of the world. And it's interesting, though, because truly, as we look at these two individuals, oftentimes people can be sort of drawn to the Esau and look at the Jacob as, as a deceiver, as somebody who didn't, you know, he's, he's, he's taken advantage of his brother. Certainly, did he go about some of the things the wrong way? Yes, he did, as I've already stated. But what was it that he was after? Well, he was after, in this particular case, as we'll see here, he's after a birthright. Now, one of the things uh, that we'll need to consider just for a moment is that uh, God had said, essentially, that the birthright would be his anyhow. Okay, So we can't forget that. That's going to come back here in a moment. Um, God had already essentially prophesied that when he had spoken to Rebekah about the fact that the older would serve the younger. But this appears to be what Jacob is, is, is really after. Now, a character study could certainly be done on Jacob. Many have. I've, I've done them myself. And uh, much could be speculated about his desires and his intentions throughout his life. Um, you know, again, I've already kind of elaborated on some of the things that we see happen in Jacob's life. And, uh, and look at verse 28. I mean, it says that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. seems Isaac, to some degree, was like, man, you're bringing back some good meat here. But that's the other thing is, if, if, if Isaac had Abraham's inheritance, they had no need for Isaac to go hunting. So again, going back to this idea of him being a cunning hunter, it was unnecessary. They had all the livestock that they could have ever enjoyed at their disposal, yet He's running around in the hills doing who knows what, coming back exhausted each day while his brother's the one working in the kitchen, working, probably making from what they have along with his mother. Isaac gets a little bit of a taste for this wild game. Okay? And, uh, and so we get some little insights here and there. And it says, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So already we have a little bit of a problem here, right? We've got, we've got a, a, a mom and a dad, two boys, and there's clear affections for for both of them, there's favorites here. And, and what of Jacob? Maybe there is a longing for him to find approval. Maybe there is a longing for him to uh, have a sense of uh, security in how his father feels about him. I don't know that that's too much of a stretch, especially then as we even see this play out with uh, Leah and and what he goes through in seeking out a wife and her own insecurities and, and what Jacob has to learn through some of that time. Um, and so again, much could be speculated about what's going on in Jacob's heart, but here's what I want us to understand. He's seeking after something that is greater. He has an appreciation for something that his brother has that his, his brother really doesn't care about. And, um, and so what he's, what he's identifying, what he's going after, albeit he may be going after it the wrong way, it is a value. What he's pursuing is something that is good. A birthright, according to custom, is discussed in uh, Deuteronomy in, in chapter 21, verse 17. Let's take a look at that here for a moment. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So there is certainly a material benefit that comes along with being the firstborn, a double portion inheritance, okay? But it's more than that. Along with this would be the right to lead the household. And in leading the household, you would have to take on the responsibility of providing for the household. So lest somebody says very quickly, oh, well, it's just about the money. Listen, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it and more so than even the material provision of the household, the biggest thing was the spiritual leadership of the household. And along with the spiritual leadership of the household was the building of and presiding over the altar. There was a priestly component to the birthright. And, and so truly, uh, and, and most commentaries agree here, that, that Jacob, and, and we see this play out in the rest of his life, even though there's things that he chases after, there is a desire for him to know the Lord. There is a desire on his part to serve the Lord. There is a desire on his part to be blessed by God and to be used by God. What Jacob, Jacob wanted this. He wanted God's blessing. He wanted to be used by God. 
He wanted to be close to God in this way. Now, yes, does he have uh, maybe an issue throughout his life of wanting to be first, of being competitive? Sure. Sometimes that can be beneficial. Oftentimes our greatest strengths are also our greatest weaknesses, right? But what of Esau in this situation? The one that many times people think, well, he just gets kind of bamboozled here. He gets taken advantage of. He's a little maybe dense. You know, he's just been out hunting a little too much and not paying attention. And, and, we, and we can kind of just think that, man, he got taken advantage of. No, he doesn't care about these things. He doesn't care about it. It says, verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew. And Esau came in from the field. And he was weary. It's that particular verse there that some people suggest based off of the language in the original uh, uh, Hebrew that... Uh, this is what likens him to uh, a murderer, that he was out taking the, the life of a human being. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. So he comes in, whatever it is that he's been doing, he comes in weary. Uh, Jacob, we, it's not apparent to us that Jacob has this all planned out at this point, that he's maybe just making a meal for himself or his family. And uh, Esau comes in and he's thinking... Oh, man, that smells fantastic. I want, I want to eat. I'm hungry. I'm weary. Please feed me with that, red, that, that stuff you're making. Right? And it says here, what's funny, though, too. So he's hairy. Okay, he's Esau. He's hairy. But his desire for this red stew and the fact that shortly here he's going to sell his birthright for the red stew earns him the name Edom, which means red. So from this point forward, other people that know him start calling him red because he traded his birthright for the red stew. So... Harry goes to red, uh, amongst the locals at least. And Jacob looks at him and he realizes here how, how weary he is, maybe how weak he is as a result of that. This is why I say I don't think this is the first time that Jacob's ever brought up the birthright. He's had to have been thinking about this. He's had to have been plotting this for some time, not the specific act, but what am I going to do? How am I going to get him? Because I know he doesn't value it. I know that he doesn't really care about it. He's probably asked him about it before and Esau's just sort of been like, whatever, man, why do you care so much about this thing? And probably because his mother had been telling him, hey, listen, this is what God said when you guys were still in my, you know, mom telling stories to her boys and this is what was going on. And God said this. God said this about you. And maybe, maybe Jacob and his desire, maybe in his, his sense of inadequacy and his insecurities as he's, as he's thinking, man, dad, dad loves him more than he loves me. But, but by golly, if I could have the birthright, if I could have this, maybe he'd, maybe he'd love me. Who knows what's going on in, in, in Jacob's mind, but now he sees this is, this is my chance. He is weak, he's weary, he's hungry. So what does he say? Sell me your birthright as of this day. Right? He uses this opportunity to say, man, you want this so bad right now? I've got an opportunity. I'm going to trade with you. And Esau said, verse 32, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Now, what is Esau saying here? Is he saying, is this one of those moments when you guys have probably said it yourself at some point in your life, and your kids say, you're like, I am starving. I'm going to die. It's like five minutes before dinner, right? You get real dramatic. Is that what he's doing here? I, I don't think so. Most people don't think that this is what he's saying here. Really, what people agree that he is, is saying, what he's communicating is that the life that he's living, the things that he's involved in, if in fact he's been in some violent encounters, not just with animals, but people as well, that he's sort of thinking, I'm going to die at some point. Like, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just living this life. I'm doing my thing. How, how old am I going to be anyhow? What is this birthright to me? What do I even care? Eat, drink, be married. Tomorrow I'm going to die. She says, what is this to me? But we've got to ask the question. We, we've got to rephrase it for Esau. What, what is he saying about what is this to me? What, 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 is this, what is this spiritual responsibility to you? What's your spiritual heritage? What's your spiritual service to the Lord and to your family? That's what it is. This thing that you're dismissing, it's huge. It just may not be pleasurable in the moment. It may not be tangible. It may not be what is driving you right now. So Jacob says, yeah, that. Swear to me as of this day. He's like, this is my chance. This is my opportunity. Now look, here again, did Jacob capitalize on an opportunity? Yeah, he did. But he did it in pursuit of something that had far greater worth than the holder would ever recognize. There could be an element here even of Jacob, and I don't mean to seem like I'm defending him too much here because he's got his issues certainly, but, but maybe there's even a sense of not this guy, not my brother. He can't be the one that's responsible. He can't be the one that's going to lead us spiritually. He sees Esau doesn't care. 
He's so wrapped up in the physical things of this world, living a life that was carnal, that by his own admission, he thought, I'm probably going to be dead before I can ever even enjoy my inheritance. Sure, take it. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Notice here, nothing condemns Jacob. Nothing condemns Jacob here. Only Esau, he despised his birthright. Now we're going to see the deception of Jacob continue in partnership with his mother. It's kind of the next thing that we're going to see in terms of seeking their father's blessing. But this story's not done yet right here. There's, there's more for us to consider. Look again at verse 34 here. It tells us that Esau, having just handed over this thing that was so special, says the ate, drank, and he went on his way without another thought about it. He sold his spiritual heritage for a bowl of beans. Guys, he was living for the things of this world. He was living for the carnal pleasures now, and he traded spiritual blessing for instant gratification. And I wonder how often have we done the same thing? Maybe this is something you know of in your own past. Maybe this is something you're wrestling with now. Maybe you have family members, you know, they're doing this exact same thing and you're praying for them, you're pleading for them. We see this happening all the time, continuously in our culture today. We're going to start to get into some of this stuff as we dive into the, the book of Romans. We've even, we've even considered this some over the last few weeks as we've considered the fulfillment of the Great Commission, but, but we've not dived in necessarily to some of the tactics. And, and that's what the book of Romans, when we kick that off on Sunday, that's, that's part of what that does. Is what Romans helps us to understand is, is how to develop an apologetic, how to defend our faith. And you know, in the world that we are in today, the, what the world is doing is criticizing our faith. But what we need to begin to develop a boldness in doing is, is not criticizing the world, but, but deconstructing the world and, and critically assessing the culture. We've lost that ability largely within the church to go out and to, because here's the thing, and I was listening to a, a, a teaching the other day that was just nailing these things. This idea that we are, we are living in an increasingly post-Christian culture. We're not entirely yet, but, but it is becoming a post-Christian culture. Over these last several decades, 30, 40 years, that's what's been happening. Now, those of you that have spent time on the, uh, on the missions field internationally, you have a greater sense of what it's like then to preach the gospel and to share the gospel and to get people into church who have no sense of, of that in their background. And it's different. You approach them differently. For a long time in our country, we've thought, well, you can just put up a church, put up a big enough sign and advertise your programs and people are going to come because there's this sort of this base level understanding that to be a good person, I got to go to church. But it's not working that way anymore because now the idea of, 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 of I should probably go to church, it's not even on people's radars. Whatever, I don't need to do that. Why would I do that? It's not part of your background. It's not part of your history. And so you go on living your life the way you want to live it according to the rules of our culture, and we've got to be able to engage people in a way where we go, man, what? Let's, start, let's start to break this down, to critically assess the culture and to help people to see the flaws in it, to help people to see that, in fact, on a daily basis, they are trading eternity for the pleasures of today. And this is what happens with Esau. And what we need to look at in his life, too, as we even consider our own, is how seemingly small choices can have big consequences. I read for you earlier Hebrews 12, 16, which speaks of, Eli, of Esau being outside of the temple and being profane. In verse 17, it speaks further about him saying, For you know that afterward, when he, Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. The sad story about Esau is that he came to a place where he began to understand, I've lost a lot. I've sacrificed a lot. I've given up a lot. And now I want it back, but he couldn't. He couldn't get it back. Now, this particular verse can sometimes be confusing as if it's sort of suggesting that there was just no opportunity for him to repent and receive forgiveness. And that's not the case. Forgiveness is always available to those who, who, with a contrite heart, seek it and ask for it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the things we've squandered throughout our lifetime can be given back to us in this life. You see that passage there, verse 17 of, of Hebrews 12. It's not about forgiveness. It's about the fact that he couldn't undo what he had done. When he wanted that blessing from Isaac, even with tears, 
he couldn't have it because he'd sacrificed it. I don't wonder how many times we trade so much that we could have with God for the things of this world. And, and here's the other thing. It's easy for us to look at the way in which people are exchanging the things of God for physical pleasures of various kinds. But I wonder even for us, Christian, are we sometimes trading what God has for us for the, just the distractions of this world? It's not about simply indulging in the physical pleasures, but what are the things that just monopolize our time? How are we spending our time? Evaluate what you're doing through the course of your day. What are you giving yourself to? What are you falling into? What are the things that are just taking over your life? What are the striving in our lives? The things that we are striving after, seeking to make happen, trying to, to grasp it, but all the while chasing something that the Lord says, that's not what I have for you. I think like Esau, are we giving consideration to what we actually have in Christ, the way he has said, here, I have, this is what I have for you. This is what I want for you. And so we see that with Esau, but that's to some degree what we've got to consider then as we look at Jacob. Jacob was after something. Certainly, we've established that. But as I mentioned earlier, and I said we come back to it, what we need to understand and where we can, I think, fault Jacob is in the manner in which he was seeking after this, knowing that God had already promised it to him. God had already said it's yours. It was not wrong that Jacob desired it. It was wrong that he pursued it in the way that he did for ultimately what time and trust in the Lord would have accomplished if he'd have just said, okay, Lord, I know what you've said, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to wait on you. It would have come to him. We can be sure of that because God had said so. And so this is, with the remaining time that we have left, what we've got to look at as it pertains to Jacob. If you would, for him, let, let, let's do this. Um, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, th- three different passages. They all happen to pertain to the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 1, beginning... Um, now we're going to look at four, if we can do it. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, just read along with me, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greeting of his letter, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Notice here, he says that he has done this. Not that he's going to do this, he has done this. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He has made you accepted. He has predestined that you will be adopted To his praise, verse 7, in him we have, we have it, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him." In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What is Paul saying there? Summarize it for me. What's Paul saying? Chosen? Yep. Yep. He's given you everything. And, and he's also sealed you, and he's made a promise. He's put down a down payment, if you will, to say that, and that all this other stuff is going to come. That's ours now. He's promised it to us. And Paul will, will go on even there through, through chapter 2 to, to, to talk even more about what it is that God has done already. He's accomplished it. 1 Corinthians. This may seem like an odd one here, but as we think about this and we think about who wrote it, so Paul writes this. Paul's going to 
we've got to trust that Paul believes this as he's sharing this consistently with people. Well, how then did it affect Paul's life? Paul understanding, here is what God has done for me. Here is what he has given me. Here is what he has promised me. So here is what my life is going to look like. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 19, beginning in verse 19, he says this, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means have or excuse me, by all means, save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Why do I bring up that verse? Well, because Paul's understanding of what he has in Christ allows him to live in a way, whatever he is, where he's going to reach people with the truth of the gospel. He's, to these people, I can be this. To these people, I can be this. He's saying, I've got liberty in Christ to be able to do all these things so that the gospel will go forth. His confidence then being his ability to go, I'll be weak, I'll be strong, I'll be under the law, I'll be without the law, because I know what God has done for me. I know what my identity is. I know that he's already promised this to me. Philippians 4.13, it's a passage of scripture everybody loves to quote, right? Quote it with me, what does it say? I can do All things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that mean all things? Not really. Sort of. But we always want to take that verse and we want to say, look at this, I can be a superhero because I got Jesus. Well, depending on how you define superhero, sure. But what is Paul actually saying there? Look at it for a moment. This is where we've got to think, look at things within context. Philippians 4.13, take the full passage, starting in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I sp- not that I speak in regard to need. So here he's saying, you guys finally have taken care of me. You've supplied some things that I need. But he says, but I'm not really speaking in terms of need, that I really needed these things. Why? For I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul is saying there is he's saying, listen, I can be poor and destitute. I can be rich and in plenty. It doesn't matter. I can do it all because Christ strengthens me. None of these situations prompt me to feel like, hey, I need this. I'm perfectly content. Why? Because he knows what he has. He knows what he has. Go back to the very beginning of our study tonight, Abraham. Abraham comes to a place where when he dies, he says that he died full. Why? Because he knew what he had. He knew that he believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was a friend of God. He had a relationship with God. And so what we're going to see then start to play out with Jacob here is, yes, he's after the right things, but he's going about it the wrong way. Yeah, his brother doesn't doesn't have a thought about it. His brother's willing to sacrifice it all, a life. He's going to die an empty life because of the distractions and the things of this world. Jacob, on the other hand, says, no, I want that, and we should want it too, but we also need to be willing to say, I already do. I already have it. He's already done it. So then, how am I going to live my life? Am I going to be striving? Am I going to be conniving? Am I going to be deceiving? Am I going to be trying to go, okay, here's all these things I want, or am I going to be willing to go, Lord, you've already done it. And so, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'm good. I'm at peace. I'm content. Go back to our study from Sunday in Acts chapter 20. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, but that I would finish my race with joy. And I can't help but when I look at Jacob, and I think these are the things that he's going to have to learn. He's going to have to learn. He's going to have to come to that place where he just is able to rest and to know, I already have it. It's interesting. I mean, we're, we're far away from that at this point. But, I mean, think of how it's all going to continue to play out. And Jacob, he's, his life's going to go on. He's going to have many sons. Well, there's a really important son in there. What's his name? Joseph, right? Joseph's going to go where? Egypt. He's going to have to go through some difficult times, some stuff that he's like, what is happening? 
I mean, far more than we <laughs> than I think we could ever really imagine, right? But then he's going to come to a place where he's going to go, oh man, look what God did. And then of his brothers who are going to be like, oh man, he's going to kill us, right? And he's going to look at him and he's going to go, no, God already did this. I already forgave you. You already have Everything you want, everything you're looking for, you already have it. But you're living like you don't, and you're trying to connive and figure out how do we get it. And guys, I just I, I hope that's making sense here this evening. That yeah, Jacob's after the right things. We need to be after the right things, but we need to be willing to do it in such a way where we understand he's already done it. So rest in him, trust in him, trust his timing, and believe that he's going to make good on his promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for our time together here this evening. We pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you and beneficial to us as the body of Christ. Lord, work these truths into our hearts uh, continually, Lord. Shape us, mold us, transform us, Lord, in the individuals that you've created us to be. And help us, Lord, to first and foremost keep our eyes fixed upon you and what you have for us, Lord. Not to be distracted by the things of this world or, or by just all the things that we can tend to give our lives to. But then also, Lord, help us to trust in your timing. To know, Lord, that you've already blessed us. You've already equipped us. And just allow you to work in your perfect timing in our lives. Be willing, Lord, to allow you to, to walk with us uh, through all that is ahead. Uh, Father, we love you. We praise you. Lord, we give you thanks and I ask for your blessing upon each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.